0: welcome to saving grace church located in indiana pennsylvania our mission at saving grace church is to love god love others and reach the world for christ we hope that this message brings you closer to god and helps strengthen your walk with christ Bible with you, uh, or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Exodus, uh, to chapter 40. Uh, we're going to be reading through uh, that chapter in its entirety, so buckle up, it's going to be a long one, but uh, I think it's really important for us to, to really get into to the details of this account and then see what the Lord would have to say for us. So Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with a veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle." You shall set up the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around it and hang up a screen for the gates of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar so that the altar may be holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall anoint, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. In the first month, on the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its base and set its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the Ark of the Testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranging the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and he set up the lamp before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in front of the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of the burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up its screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we come to your word today, uh, we are reminded uh, that you in your grace have gifted us with your presence. Lord, as we, as we look at your word today, I pray that that reality uh, would come alive to us, that we would see what is true about us as your people. Uh, Father God, I pray for myself that you would give me the right words to say that your spirit would speak through your word today, that hearts would be changed, uh, and that we would would recognize this reality of your desire for your presence among your people, and that out of that, God, we would seek your presence. We would be known as a people who seek after the presence of God. Lord, we commit all these things to you and pray that you would do these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, we see that Everything so far in the book of Exodus has been building up to this climactic scene where the Lord, Yahweh, has come down to dwell among his people. The whole reason that why God redeemed his people from slavery, why he invited them into covenant relationship with him, it was for this purpose, that he might dwell among them as their God. Uh, this points to the big idea that I want us to, to walk away from this morning with. The big idea is this, that God's driving desire and our greatest need is for us to dwell in his presence as his holy people. God's driving desire and our greatest need is for us to dwell in his presence as his holy people. And we're going to see this truth play out in three steps today. First of all, we're gonna see the desire for divine presence. And secondly, we're gonna see the obstacle to divine presence. And third, the way into divine presence. The desire for divine presence, the obstacle to divine presence, and the way into divine presence. And I want, to, I want to pause here and address the kids in the room today. So I always love, I, I seem like I, I always get to preach whenever the kids are in the room, which I love it. I love you kids getting to have you guys in the room, getting to have you guys uh, participate with the rest of us, uh, the rest of the church today, just to know that you guys, uh, we, we care about you guys. We see you guys as being a part of our family here. And I was actually wondering if you guys could, uh, could help me out with something today. So I've got three big points, three big ideas. I want you guys, if there's nothing else you get out of this morning, these are the three things I want you guys to come away with. And I want want to see if you guys can, can remember these and help me out with these today. You guys think you can do that? You guys think you can do that? Kids? Okay, I'm seeing some nodding. Okay, so here's the three things I want you guys to remember. Number one, God wants us to be with him. Number two, our sin keeps us from being with God. Number three, Jesus makes a way for us to be with God. So number one, God wants us to be with him. Number two, our sin keeps us from being with God. And number three, Jesus makes a way for us to be with God. You guys got that? All right, let's see, Test. somebody shout out. What was the first one? Somebody? Oh, (laughs) cheaters. (laughs) All right, somebody shout it out. What was the first one? Awesome, good job, Ellie. Appreciate it. that's right. God wants us to be with him. This is the first, the first step, the desire for divine presence. Uh, look, with, look with me at verses one and two of chapter 40. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Now there's actually a whole lot that's packed into these two verses. I mean, first of all, any of you guys who were here two weeks ago when Joe preached on Exodus 32, you'll remember that After all that God had done for Israel, delivering them out of slavery, bringing judgment on their oppressors, bringing them through the Red Sea, bringing them to Mount Sinai, giving them his law for them to follow so that they they might be his people who would show his glory to the world. After all of that, the Israelites, the first chance they get, they turn away from God. They break their covenant relationship with him. They turn and start worshiping idols. And yet, despite Israel's betrayal, the Lord Yahweh, He still remained faithful to His promise to dwell among His people. See, the day that He actually instructs Moses to build the tabernacle, that was actually the one-year anniversary of the Exodus. Israel might have forgotten that what all that God had done for them, but God had not forgotten. And this is this is so important for us to understand because it shows that God's presence among His people—this was, wasn't something that they were able to earn, but this was came al- by grace alone these instructions that Yahweh gives to Moses on how to construct the tabernacle where his glory would dwell, this actually isn't the first time that these instructions come up in Exodus. Have you guys ever been watching like maybe a TV show episode or something like that, and the episode starts and it jumps right in the middle of the action, and you're like, what? what's going on? How did he get there? And then all of a sudden it pauses, and there's this little title card that says, 24 hours earlier, and then we jump back in time and they, start, they show what happened earlier and they give some context for what's going on. Well, I want us to imagine this is kind of like that. If we actually would jump back to Exodus 25 through 31, we're not gonna read that, don't worry. But if we were to go back and look at those, we'd actually see that God promised the tabernacle. He promised to dwell in the tabernacle all the way back at Mount Sinai before even Israel had turned away from, from him. And he gave these detailed instructions to Moses in that, even before all that happened. And now what we have in chapter 40 is even after Israel's betrayal, God comes back to Moses and says, I still want you to build this house for me, this tabernacle for me. And as he gives these instructions to Moses and as Moses carries them out, we, we see that the tabernacle was designed to be broken down into these three distinct spaces. And I actually brought a picture to show you guys because pictures would be way more fun than me just talking about it. So do we have that picture? Yes, here's a picture of the tabernacle. Don't know how well you can see this, but hopefully this will help show us how the Lord wanted this house for his presence to be designed. So first, there's these three sections. The first section, which we see in verses six through eight, this is the outer section, the courtyard. So you guys see that, kids, you see that fence around there? That outside section, was the courtyard and this was where the priests would offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the people and there was also this basin of water where they would go to wash themselves and cleanse themselves every time they went to enter the tent and now the second part of the tabernacle which we read about in verses four and five this was the outer chamber where only the priests could enter this chamber was called the holy place and here we see God commands Moses to bring all these things in, all these decorative gold elements, including a lamp uh, with se- a, a lampstand with seven lamps on it, a table for this bread in God's presence, a, an altar, a gold altar where they would, work, would offer incense before the presence of the Lord. And then finally, we read about this innermost chamber. That's all the way, I can't really see it well in the picture, but all the way in the back of the, ten- of the tent There was this short little 15 by 15 foot room and that was called the most holy place. This was where God's presence would dwell. This was where uh, the Ark of the Covenant would be. God gives these instructions to Moses. We see in verses 20 and 21 where he tells him to take the 10 commandments that he had written on these stone tablets and he tells him to put them inside this golden box and then they're to put these poles on this box so that no human being would touch it whenever they would carry it and then he constructs uh, these gold statues of these angelic creatures called cherubim that sit on top of the box with their wings outstretched to represent the throne of God. So if you've seen Indiana Jones, this is like the thing from the Indiana Jones movie that melts like the Nazis' faces off at the end of the movie, but yeah, unlike the movie, the real Ark of the Covenant, it wasn't just like this, this treasure relic that was ma- had some magical powers. No, this was a physical symbol of God's holiness and his authority. And it also represented his grace because when the high priest would enter this, this last chamber once a year, he would sprinkle blood from an animal before this, this mercy seat, which would cover the sins of the people. And you know, there's one thing that's significant about the design of the tabernacle is if you were to look back at chapters 25 through 31, we see that there's all these allusions to the book of Genesis, to the creation account from Genesis 1. Really, all of it is trying to make this point that the tabernacle is designed to be an earthly sanctuary for Yahweh. So we see, for example, that just like in Genesis 1, God speaks the world into existence in seven days. In Exodus, In seven speeches, he gives these instructions to Moses for how the tabernacle is to be built. In Genesis 2, God sets the tree of life in the middle of the garden. And then in Exodus, he commands Moses to make this lamp that looks like a tree that sits in the middle of the tabernacle. In Genesis 3, he sets these cherubim to guard the entrance to Eden to keep anything sinful or unclean from coming in. And then in Exodus he has Moses construct these statues of cherubim on the ark and weave them into the curtains in front of the most holy place. Uh, In in Genesis 2, he commands Adam to guard and to serve in the garden. And then if we were to skip forward to the book of Numbers, he actually gives that exact same command to the priests who live in the tabernacle. All of this is pointing to what, uh, as one commentator I read, the way he puts it is that the tabernacle was supposed to be like this microcosm of the Garden of Eden, of God's presence among the people. And we see, too, in verses nine through 15 of Exodus 40, that this tabernacle where heaven intersected with Earth, that everything in it was to be consecrated to the Lord and set apart as holy. So Moses, he takes oil and he anoints the tent, he anoints everything in the tent. He anoints the priests. The priests have to come, and they have to wash themselves every time before they enter the tent. All of that was to show that this was a sacred space, that because the God who dwelt there was holy. Everything in it used for his service was meant to be set apart as holy. And then we see once Moses obeys all these commands that God is giving him, we read in verses 34 through 38 that Yahweh, he stays true to his word and his glory comes down on the tabernacle. We see that he's finally following through on what what he had promised Moses all the way back in Exodus 29, 45, and 46 where he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See so what, what this tells us about God is that his desire is for us to dwell in his presence. Uh, this idea, this is all throughout the Bible, all the way starting back in Genesis 1, where God is present in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. See, God is a relational being. And we as human beings who are made in his image, we were designed for relationship. We were designed for presence. I mean, I think back to like a year ago when lockdown was happening. I know that for each of us, we kind of had to go through that in different ways. It was different for some of us. Some of us had no choice, had to go to work. Others of us weren't able to leave our homes and and be present with other people. And, you know, maybe for like introverts like myself, it was nice for a little bit where you're like, oh, I don't have to go to work. I don't have to go to class. I can just like sit at home, work in my pajamas. I can just like pull up my meetings and classes on Zoom. Don't have to worry about having a busy schedule, Uh, at least for me, ordering takeout multiple times a week, all in the name of supporting local business. You know, it's maybe nice at first, but Yeah, what this past year, if anything, what it's shown us is that we were not designed to live in isolation, even with all the technological advances we have of video calls and social media. These are poor substitutes for physical presence with other human beings. You and I are relational beings designed for presence, and ultimately, we were designed for God's presence. See, While even healthy human relationships can provide us with love and comfort and happiness, no human relationship can ultimately satisfy us. I'm sure even the people you love and trust the most have let you down at some point. Only when we are in relationship with an infinite God who is perfect in love and goodness can we find satisfaction for our relational needs. This is why King David in Psalm 1611 writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's desire is for you and me to dwell with him in his presence. Because no other relationship can ever satisfy us in the way that he can, our desire should be to dwell in his presence. However, what the ending of Exodus shows us is that we face an obstacle to the presence of God. Kids, let's see how good your memory was. Anybody remember? What was the second thing I wanted you to remember? Good job, guys, you guys are awesome. Yeah, that's right, our sin keeps us from being with God. This second step is the obstacle to divine presence. So for the Israelites who were were dwelling around the tabernacle, this served as this visual demonstration of God's presence among them, but it also demonstrated God's separation from them because of his holiness and because of their sinfulness. Notice, if you look at verses 21 and then verse 28 and then verse 33, that every time Moses finishes constructing a section of the tabernacle, what does he do? He walls it off with a veil. The, the, the tabernacle was broken down into sections with restricted access. Only people who were Israelites could go into the courtyard of the temple. Only the priests could go, actually go into the tent And only the high priest could actually go into the most holy place. And even then, he could only go in once a year. And only if he brought the blood of an animal to cover his sin and to cover the sins of the people. See, although Yahweh was gracious by delivering Israel, by calling them to be his people and by dwelling among them, they still had failed and broken his covenant by turning away to idols he had saved them out of slavery and he promised to give them a home in the promised land so that they might show his glory to all the nations who were around them. But in this ironic twist, instead of pointing all the other nations to Yahweh, what we see is Israel, they just become like all the other pagan nations worshiping idols. And at the end of Exodus, we come to find that Israel's greatest problem, it wasn't something outside of them. It wasn't Pharaoh. It wasn't Egypt. Their greatest problem was something inside of them, their own sinful hearts. If you look with me at at verse 35, we see that God's glory in the tabernacle, it was so great, not even Moses could enter the tabernacle. I mean, up till now, Moses, he's been like this mediator. He's been this go-between between Yahweh and the people of Israel. He alone was invited into the presence of God at the top of Mount Sinai, and yet not even Moses was able to enter the burning brilliance of the full glory and holiness of God. You know, in a way, the book of Exodus, it almost, it really just kinda ends on a cliffhanger where Moses is not able to enter the presence of God. Everything they're waiting for, they're not able to go into the presence of God and it goes right into the book of Leviticus, which is all about these sacrificial laws and these cleansing regulations that the people of Israel would have to follow if they were gonna dwell in the holy presence of God. See, what, what we see at the ending of Exodus is that even though we were designed to dwell in God's presence, we're kept from the one thing we need by the obstacle of our own idolatry and the uncleanness of our souls. Now, hopefully none of us have been tempted to bow down to a statue of a cow this week. I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't think I have, but the fact is you and I are just as guilty Of idolatry as the ancient israelites were our our idols are just more subtle they're just more civilized you know we we give our time and our energy and our money and our passions to seek material comfort uh, that is found in the world instead of looking to god's all satisfying presence where he provides for all our needs we we indulge our lusts our addictions our anger our inclinations to gossip instead of seeking after holiness by living the way that our creator has called us to live. You know, we, we, we put our trust in sinful, flawed human beings, in our relationships, in our politics, instead of looking to the only one who's actually able to meet our needs for love and security. You know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote in this book, The Weight of Glory, that when we run to these lesser glories, Instead of the one who offers us infinite joy, we're acting like a child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then he writes, we are far too easily pleased. Yeah, I need you you to hear me on this. You cannot dwell with God while peacefully coexisting with your idols. what, What the book of Exodus makes clear and the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and all the Old Testament and all the New Testament makes clear is that our God is a holy God. His desire is for us to dwell with him in his presence and for you and I to be satisfied in him, but he's not gonna stand for any rivals in your heart, for your affections. There's no scenario in the Bible where you can come to God wanting the benefits of his love and his presence But without wanting holiness, the whole reason that God wants us to live in his presence is not just that we would be satisfied in him, but that we would be made holy in him. And as we're made holy, that we would find satisfaction and joy in that. See, just like everything in the tabernacle had to be anointed and consecrated as holy because the God who dwelt there was holy, You and I also need to be made holy if we are going to live in relationship with our holy God. You cannot dwell with a holy God while peacefully coexisting with your idols. And it gets more complicated because even though we desire to be with God, we can't actually stand in God's presence based on our own moral living or our rule keeping, our being a good church attender, our being a good person. Notice how in verses 29 through 32, Moses and the priests, they don't try to approach the tabernacle based on the belief that they're good enough. No, Moses has to offer sacrifices. They all have to cleanse themselves in order to serve in the tabernacle. Even the priests needed to be cleansed and they needed the blood of an animal to cover their sins. And we're no different. Even if we desire to be with God, we can't come to him based on anything good we have done. We cannot earn God's acceptance by minimizing the contamination of our own souls. And we also, we can't earn God's acceptance by claiming that our greatest problem is something that exists outside of us, maybe our upbringing or hardships in life or other people. No, our greatest problem is something which exists in our own hearts, our sin. Because each one of us is corrupted by sin, we cannot do enough or we cannot be good enough to stand before a holy God We need cleansing. We need atonement. You know, one of the great tensions of the book of Exodus, and really all of the Old Testament, is this question, how can sinful people live with a holy God? I mean, if God's desire is for us to dwell with him, but our sin and our idolatry, the contamination of our souls, that keeps us from standing in his holy presence, how can we ever dwell with God? Well, this brings us to, to this third step, the way of divine presence. Kids, do you happen to remember what that one was? Any? Jesus makes a way for us to be with God. Awesome job, guys. You guys are great. Yes, that's right. See, Moses wasn't able to enter the tabernacle because he could not stand in the unfiltered presence of the glory of God, but God would make a way for us to stand in his presence by coming down again in the tabernacle of a human body. See, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read that Jesus Christ, who was God the Son, became flesh and dwelt. That, that word, it literally means tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. By coming to us in a human body, Jesus showed himself to be the true tabernacle where God's presence would dwell among humanity. Though, though we could not look at the full brilliance of God's glory in the tabernacle, by taking on human flesh, Jesus made a way for people to see the glory of God in him. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. U- ultimately, Jesus would grant us access into the presence of God by offering his own life as a cleansing and atoning sacrifice for us. See, this is the gospel. That your sin and mine, it keeps us from being with God. But Jesus lived a perfect life that we should have lived. And he died the death for sin that we deserve to die so that we might know God's forgiveness and his acceptance and his loving presence. How can sinful people dwell with a holy God? This reality, it only makes sense through Jesus who is both God incarnate and who is also the perfect high priest and atoning sacrifice who grants access for sinners like you and me into the presence of a holy God. At the ending of Exodus, it points us forward to God's plan to make a way to dwell with us despite our sin, first by sending his son to live among us as a man and now through his Holy Spirit who dwells in the hearts of his new covenant people, the church. See, because Jesus, his perfect life and his sacrificial death, through that, every person who puts their trust in him is now cleansed and sanctified so that they can become a temple indwelt with the Holy Spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And the Apostle Peter, he, he writes about us corporately as the church in 1 Peter 2, 5, saying that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have something that the Israelites not, and not even Moses had. You have God's very presence dwelling with you and in you 24-7. And whenever we gather together as a church of Jesus, we have his presence dwelling among us as he reveals his glory to the world through us. God's plan to dwell among his people, it doesn't doesn't stop there though. It gets better. The full reality of God's presence, it comes to us at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. If you'd actually turn with me there to Revelation 21. starting at verses one and through three. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Go ahead and skip down with me to verse 15. He says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now jump down to verse 22 with me. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Almighty and the Lamb. Now, why is there no temple in the new heavens and the new earth? There's actually a clue here that John, that John the Apostle is cluing us into when he talks about this thing where this angel is measuring how big the New Jerusalem is. There's actually significance here. I know those parts where it's talking about stadia, cubits, those are the parts we all kind of skim through, right? Let's be honest. But there's actually something really important here. What's the dimensions of the New Jerusalem? It's a cube. What, were, what was the dimensions of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? It was a cube. It's like God is saying that the Holy of Holies, the whole earth is going to become the Holy of Holies. It's like this one scholar named G.K. Beale writes that the two outer sections of the tabernacle, they've fallen away like a cocoon, and God's Holy of Holies, that presence emerges to dominate creation. See, there's no temple, there's no tabernacle, because everywhere we look, when Jesus comes and makes all things new, we will be surrounded God's holy presence, and we will dwell with him face to face. Now, what does this mean for us now in light of what Jesus has done? How can you and I seek the presence of God now? Well, first, we have to look to Jesus as our only hope for cleansing and forgiveness. You have to recognize You can't earn God's acceptance by doing enough or by trying to be good enough, all the while minimizing the contamination of your own soul. You can't gain God's acceptance by pointing to things outside of you when your greatest problem is within. You know, there's this story about uh, the famous British writer and philosopher G.K. Chesterton where he was interviewed by the Times and they were asking all these smart people, what's wrong with the world today? And, And his answer was simply, dear sirs, I am. See, even on our best days, we are far worse off than we could ever know without any hope of standing in God's presence. But in Jesus Christ, our great high priest and perfect atoning sacrifice, we can be far more loved and accepted than we could ever imagine. If you're trusting in your own moral living or your own performance, can I plead with you? Look to Jesus. You can never be good enough but you don't have to be because he's already been good enough. And by trusting in him to be good enough in your place, you can know the perfect love and acceptance found in the presence of God. So that's, that's the first thing. The second way that we can seek the presence of God is by turning from our own personal idols through practicing confession and repentance in the places where we run for comfort and for security, which are not God. We need to turn away and instead run to God's all satisfying presence where he promises to provide for your every need. In those places where like the Israelites, you return to sinful habits and addictions, confess those things to God, confess those things to other Christians and pursue holiness. You know, your, your sinful habits and addictions, they cannot coexist with God's holiness, but Jesus made a way not just for you to be forgiven, but because he's sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in you, you can now pursue holiness, not in your own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And in those areas where you trust people to fill your need for love and security, recognize that true love and acceptance ultimately must be found in relationship with God because he alone is perfect. And because in his love, He pursued relationship and presence with you and I at the cost of his own life. The third way that we can seek the presence of God is by drawing near to him through his word and through prayer. Uh, The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus has made a way for you to have intimate access to the throne of the God of the universe, where you can seek the joy found in his presence and where you can boldly bring all of your needs He's given you his word to speak to you, to speak truth to your life and to reveal himself to you. And he's given you the gift of prayer so that you might be able to speak directly to him, asking him for whatever you need. You know, we shouldn't miss that our our personal devotion time with the Lord, which we so easily can push off to the side or just kind of half-heartedly rush through, this is actually something powerful and miraculous. When we seek God's presence through his word and through prayer, we get to experience personal communion with him that the Israelites in the book of Exodus never had. And finally, we can seek the presence of God now through gathering with the rest of his people, through gathering with the church. You know, when we gather together with Jesus's church on Sundays or in your small group, he's present with us and he manifests his glory through us. Uh, This means that we must prioritize being present with the people of God. You know, I'm so grateful that, you know, we have the capabilities to do live streams, that we have social media, things like that. But again, these things, we should never feel comfortable with these things being a permanent substitute for physical presence with other Christians. So as we're continuing to wrestle and navigate the challenges in the coming months, even the coming years, of trying to navigate a global pandemic, trying to seek safety, to care for others. At the same time, can I urge us to keep considering this question? How can I seek the presence of God through seeking presence with the people of God? God's driving desire and our greatest need is for us to dwell in his presence as his holy people. And Jesus is the living, breathing proof of this. When our sin and idolatry blocked us from the presence of God, his sacrificial love made a way into the presence of God. And the mind-blowing thing is that that same blazing glory that caused Moses to tremble, that same glory now shines through Jesus, who stands by your side now, waiting and ready to comfort you with the glory of his presence. He is near to you, and he invites you to draw near to him. Would you stand and pray with me? Worship team, you can come on back up. Oh, Father God, we are in awe of your grace. We are in awe of your gracious presence that even thousands of years ago, back in the wilderness, that even then we see glimpses of your plan to make a way for sinful human beings like us to dwell with you Oh God, we are in awe of that. We pray that you would give us greater awe of this gift that we have, Lord, that in response we would seek your presence, that we would turn from everything, that would distract all the other things, that would would call for our affections, that would call for our allegiance, that we would seek you first, turn from those things, that we would come to you knowing that we are made righteous and acceptable through the blood of Christ and in that, God, That we would seek your face and know the joy, the satisfaction, the comfort of your presence, God. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.